Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Mark Schatzker, who is the author of The Dorito Effect, fascinating investigation into the introductions of flavor into the industrialized food supply. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So you're an investigative journalist, I think. Is that yes. correct? I, I'm an investigative journalist. I'm a travel writer. I'm a food writer. Um, I do it all. All right. So your primary uh, profession is a journalist. And yes. what, what brought you to write this book? Uh, very simply, a curiosity about flavor. Um, it began with my first book, um, which was a book about steak. And very simply for that book, I traveled around the world searching for the greatest steak. Sounds mm -hmm. simple. Turns out it's not so simple. I got uh, deeply into the science of flavor, the science of how we perceive flavor. Um, but I also ask a question that we rarely ask, which is why does food have flavor? Um, we think it's all very simple. We take for granted the fact that apples taste like apples and steak tastes like steak. Uh, but then when you start to get inside it, it becomes very interesting. One of the most interesting insights in that book was how cows eat. It turns out what cows eat not only have a nutritional effect on the meat that they produce, but also, of course, on their own internal metabolism. You are what you eat. Well, here's something interesting. Uh, I would go to visit a ranch and there would be, let's say, a field of pregnant cows and there would be a field of steers. And the rancher would say, oh, those pregnant cows, they're over in the field of clover because they need a lot of protein because they're pregnant. And then you think to yourself, well, how do they know they need a lot of protein? They don't even know what protein is. So how does a cow know what to eat? And the answer is flavor feedback. They seek out the flavors that bring their bodies what they need. Uh, it's something we are certainly very alienated from in our food culture. We tend to think if food tastes good, spit it out. And yet in nature, you see it working the completely other way where the delicious flavors are guiding animals to the foods they need. So I asked what is a simple question with a very complex answer, which is, does it work that way for humans? And what was your final uh, observations with respect to at least the steak? Well, I suspect well, you it pointed you towards uh, natural, continuously grass-phase, non-CAFO uh, <laughs> uh, fed beef would be the best. Yeah, that's essentially where it started. It started, uh, my brother moved to Chile in the early 90s. I went to visit him and we, we bought some Argentine beef and had one of those kind of blow you away experiences where you just cannot believe how good the beef is. And I kind of, that's where the quest started. But, you know, I come back to North America and everyone would tell me, you want marbling, you want corn fed. And I could never get this steak back. And then finally, I had a grass fed steak. I wrote an article for Slate.com. I got some grass fed beef from Alder Spring Ranch in Idaho. And once again, it was this return to flavor. That's what set me on this quest. And, and absolutely, grass fed beef, when it's done properly, there's nothing like it. You will chase that steak high for the rest of your life. However, it's like making Pinot Noir wine. You need to know what you're doing. So you progressed from the steak book into the Dorita Effect book that you, is your most recent book. And uh, why don't you discuss the main premise, which is the discovery or the, the about 60 years ago of the Dorito. And it's a very interesting story where I believe one of the founders or the executives of the Frito company decided to have a new um, the best-selling product, but it was a very interesting story because it didn't start out that way. Yeah, it all starts with a guy named Arch West who literally could have walked off the set of the TV show Mad Men. 
Um, he worked in Madison Avenue in the 1950s. He worked on the Jell-O pudding account on Campbell's Soups. And he got invited by the Frito Company to be the VP of sales and marketing. So he moved his family to Dallas. And shortly after he arrived, Frito merged with the Lay's Chip Company to become Frito-Lay. Well, it wasn't long after Arch West arrived in Dallas that he took his family on a trip to California. Uh, it's very interesting. He was staying um, at, a, at a home in Orange County owned by a guy named Lawrence Frank. Most people have never heard of, but Lawrence Frank is the guy who invented Larry's seasoning salt. Now, keep that in mind because it comes into play later. One day, Arch West had eaten at Lawrence Frank's restaurant called The Five Crowns, where he had prime rib, his favorite meal. As he left, he bumps into none other than Ray Kroc, the guy mm -hmm. who founded McDonald's. They just had that movie about him, the founder. They exchanged pleasantries. Um, Ray Kroc complimented Arch West's daughter's golden hair. And then they passed like two ships in the night. These two seminal figures in the history of 20th century industrialized food really didn't have a whole lot to say to each other. The big moment came the next day when Arch West was driving to San Diego and he passed this little Mexican shack. And he was the kind of guy who just had to check it out. So he pulled in and he tasted for the first time in his life, a tortilla chip. And he thought, this is gonna be the next big thing for Frito-Lay. So he went back to Dallas, he presented his idea to his fellow executives, and they just sort of looked at him like it was a little funny because they thought, why would we wanna make tortilla chips when we already make Fritos, which are kind of the same thing. You can dip them in dip, dip them in salsa. But Arch West was so confident in his idea that he actually funneled discretionary funds to an offsite facility to develop this concept. He gave them a name, which in a very bastardized Spanish meant little pieces of gold. And he brought it back to his fellow executives. He passed out samples of tortilla chips and he said, gentlemen, I give you Doritos. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, this is when the world changed. This is when junk food was forever junkier and, and more addictive. But in fact, that's not what happened because the Doritos that first went to market made by Frito-Lay were just like the ones that Arch West tasted on his way to San Diego that morning, which is to say they were salted tortilla chips. And people in the Southwest around Texas and California who there was kind of a Hispanic inf uh, cultural influence knew that you could dip them in salsa and so forth. Rest of the country didn't really get it. The main complaint was the snack sounds Mexican, it doesn't taste Mexican. So Arch West has to face his fellow executives once again, the guys who he told he wasn't gonna develop the concept and he developed it and they said, what are you gonna do about Doritos. And this is when Arch West said the sentence that changed everything. He said, let's make him taste like taco. And this got laughs. They said, our Yankee friend from the North doesn't know the difference between a thing and a flavor. And it was actually a really incisive point because up until that point in time, things had their own flavors. If you wanted to experience the, the flavor of banana, you had to get a banana. If you want to experience the flavor of blackberry, you had to get a blackberry. If you want to experience the savory, tangy zest of a taco, you had to go and procure a taco. Well, probably because of Arch West's friendship with Lawrence Frank, who invented Larry Season Salt, Arch West knew there's technology that meant that didn't hold true anymore. Now you could make whatever you wanted taste like whatever you wanted it to taste like. You could literally buy flavor chemicals and put a dusting on them on a little triangular piece of fried cornmeal and voila, it would have this, it wouldn't taste exactly like a taco, but it would have that depth, that tang, that zest. And Frito-Lay then brought out taco flavored Doritos and that changed everything. And let's just think about that for a second. 
because we're talking about a high fat, high carb, high mm -hmm. salt snack that America basically said, we're not really interested in this. And with the addition of literally flavor chemicals, that turned into a snack people could not stop eating. Let's also think about this. Prior to taco flavored Doritos, when people ate tortilla chips, they would dip them in things, things that are good for you, things like a bean dip or salsa made with tomatoes, made with hot peppers. Now you didn't need that. Now you could just dust on the flavorings and they tasted good on their own. So this to me is a very important moment in the history of our food culture because it's when we mastered flavor. Up until that point, roughly speaking, flavor had been the domain of mother nature. And now it was up to the, literally, the folks who worked in marketing. Yes, I think it's also important from another perspective and that it allowed the radical deterioration of the quality of the food uh, with the introduction of these flavors. Essentially, you could ma mask and deceive people who previously could only rely on the natural chemicals that were available, but now we're being fooled by these artificial ones. So perhaps you can expand on that or respond yeah, that's to that. A, that's a, a great comment. And, and that's the other side of the coin of the Dorito effect. It's, it's not just what happens when you create synthetic flavorings. It also refers to what's happened to our real food, which is to say all the whole foods we grow, the tomatoes, the cucumbers, the strawberries, the chickens, the cows, everything that comes off a farm is getting blander and blander. We have been astoundingly successful at wringing more food from each acre of land that we have, but it's come at a cost. There's been a change in quality. Uh, when old timers complain that food doesn't taste like it used to, it's not because they're seeing the past through rose-tinted lenses or, or a rose-tinted tongue. It's because food really doesn't taste the way it used to. So, so we, you know, we have this ongoing debate in our culture about the importance of eating right. We tell people you need to eat more fruits and vegetables, you need to eat more whole foods, but what have we done? We've made those whole foods blander, less delicious than ever, and we've made the processed foods more, more delicious than ever. So this book really is an attempt to understand what's gone wrong with food through the lens of flavor. Because you know, we all think we're nutritionists, that we understand carbs and protein and vitamins, but what we all seek in every meal is flavor. And there's been a huge change in the very, in the, just the very way food tastes. Yeah, I don't think anyone can argue that point. Uh, <clears throat> but it seems you imply, and perhaps my interpretation is incorrect, that flavor is actually a marker for nutritional density of the food. And I think that's where we run into problems when we emulate that synthetically uh, into these processed junk foods that have searched virtually no nutritional value, in fact, probably negative nutritional value. Uh, and we treat, we try to emulate that. So, I mean, that's the danger with these flavor things. And, and, but why don't we, one should tangent off onto the uh, emergence of the flavor industry. I think it started in the early 60s or 50s. Yeah, well, it, it, let's talk, because you mentioned something earlier about the marker. And, and I think that's interesting. And, and the question we have to ask is, why does food have flavor? So here's something interesting. When we experience food, we experience it at least, I'll simplify a little bit, in two ways. We experience the taste of it. We all know that. You experience taste with your tongue. But you also experience the aroma of it. And this is something a lot of us don't realize. We think we experience the aroma of food when we smell it, like you, you smell a cookie before it goes in your mouth. But then when you bite into that cookie, the aroma goes into the back of your throat and up that little hole and into your nose. This is called retronasal olfaction. And this is actually a a more powerful form of smelling than normal smelling. 
This is where the richness and nuance of food comes from. If you do a brain scan of someone experiencing flavor, it takes up more gray matter than anything else. If you look at the human genome, the biggest chapter in the genome, bigger than the chapter on how to make your eyes or how to make your sex organs or how to make your brain is on how to make your nose. Because for some reason, evolution thought that this chemical sensing ability is really, really important. What's it doing there? Why is it occupying so much gray matter? Why is it occupying so much of our DNA? Well, animals have it too. And that's where some of our most interesting data comes from. There's a scientist at Utah State University, his name's Fred Provenza, and he did some fascinating experiments. I'll, I'll give you an example of just one. He would take a group of sheep and he would make them deficient in a mineral that's essential for, for life. He did lots of these, but I'm just talking about one, and that's phosphorus. You cannot live without phosphorus. So as they become deficient, they start to show signs of deficiency. They start pawing at the dirt. They start to drink urine from other sheep. I mean, they are nutritionally desperate. Well, then Fred would take one pen of sheep and he would put an infusion of phosphorus into their stomachs and he'd give them a feed that tastes like coconut. And then the next day he'd give them a feed that tastes like maple, but he would pair that with water. And then what he, what he was able to do is make an association between phosphorus and the flavor, that coconut flavor. So what he would then do is if he made the sheep deficient in phosphorus again, they would go after the coconut flavor. Now you might be thinking, well, maybe sheep just like coconut and they don't like maple, but over in the other pen, he reversed it. And in that pen, he paired the phosphorus with the maple. And then when those sheep became deficient in phosphorus, they sought out the maple flavor. He, he did all sorts of experiments in the wild to show how animals use flavor to obtain nutrients. So that's the reason that this, this incredible chemical sensing apparatus that we have exists. And for, for millions of years, it worked perfectly. It, it, it helped us balance our nutrition so that we could find the foods mm -hmm. we need, get what we needed and not eat to excess. Well, that all changed in about the mid 1950s. The first gas chromatograph went on sale. And what's important to remember is before that, scientists had absolutely no idea where flavor came from. They knew a lot at this point about things like the macronutrients, protein, carbs, fat. They knew a lot about vitamins. We'd figured out all the vitamins by that point. But flavor was a mystery. And the reason is that flavor exists in such minute amounts. We're talking parts per million, parts per billion that scientists would literally stare at an orange or a cup of coffee or a piece of fried chicken and just sort of scratch their head and say, what is it that makes that so flavorful? Well, the gas chromatograph changed this. With the gas chromatograph, you could take a piece of food and literally turn it into a gas, you volatize it, and send the gas through this big coil. And, and the coil separates every compound into, you know, separates them out. So out the other end comes each flavor chemical. And then they would analyze it and it didn't take long for them to analyze the flavors in things like fried chicken or tacos or tomatoes or cherries. Well, then they started making them in flavor factories and they started putting them in the foods that people eat. This is what junk food is. We talk about junk food being high calorie, um, nutritionally empty food. That is true. But here's the thing. We wouldn't eat that stuff if not for the flavoring. And that's what we added to this food to make it irresistible. 
Yeah, and I think that's a really important part of your book where you help us understand the importance of the flavor and the flavor technology so that we can be armed with ammunition to understand how our brains are being hijacked by these industrial food giants. Uh, and knowing that, we can make wiser choices because that's part of the key equation. So you mentioned that this started in the 50s with the introduction of the gas chromatograph and then progressed from there. Um, and now we have, I think, over 10,000 uh, chemicals, uh, belief artificial flavorers. I believe that's the case. Well, and also, and, and natural. So here's the thing. A lot of people, for a while, uh, consumers were getting frightened by the word artificial. Mm -hmm. um, and for a long time, there was something permitted called natural flavorings. And these were typically sure. things like spices or spice extracts. You had to make it in a, quote, natural way. Well, when, when consumers started getting frightened by the word artificial, the flavor companies began to make the very same flavor company, uh, chemicals using natural means. So people see these, this word natural flavor and they, they, I don't know what they think. They probably think it refers to a strawberry or maybe strawberry juice or something. But all it is is that same little basket of flavor chemicals that are made through things like fermentation or evaporation and not through more uh, chemically complex ways. But the bottom line is, it's the same stuff. I, in fact, I have a vial in my office. It's a, it's a natural strawberry flavoring. It is a clear liquid. It smells like strawberry. It has absolutely none of the nutrients that are in strawberries. Well, I would tend to disagree with that. I, I interviewed an author, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. Her name is Joanne Blythman and wrote the book, uh, Swallow This, where she goes yes. into great detail about this. And, and it's her contention that many of these natural flavors are being used as a legal loophole where they're actually able to put some pretty pernicious toxins in there uh, and get away with it. It's, and you know these, <clears throat> these food marketing, industrial food marketers, they're not stupid. They understand that the public abhors many of these terms like synthetic or artificial, so they can come away with another term that essentially is very similar where it actually sounds healthy, but it actually isn't. And uh, you know, from my experience, natural is probably the most abused term in the health food industry. I agree. It, natural, it, it's gotten to the point where natural is not only meaningless, but it actually makes me think, what's really going on here? But, but as to the, you know, this relationship between artificial and natural flavorings, I couldn't agree more. There is nothing more wholesome or more natural about these so-called natural flavorings. In fact, you could argue the artificial ones are actually better because they're more pure. When, when they make these natural flavorings, they don't have full control mm -hmm. over what they're getting in. So they take these chemical extracts. They, they don't know completely what's in there. So the problem is you have, you have mothers that are looking at things like yogurt tubes and granola bars, and they see this word natural flavoring, or they see no artificial coloring or flavoring, and they're being totally hoodwinked. Um, what they don't realize is they might buy a berry-flavored yogurt tube, and there's actually no berries in it at all. It's just mm -hmm. sugar, coloring, and flavoring. Yeah, the big challenge with this, as Joanne uh, really describes elegantly in her book, is that there's 10,000 of these food additives, and the vast majority of them, probably over 95, 99%, have never been tested for safety. And that doesn't even, that's just single item tested. It doesn't include the synergistic toxicity that can occur when you put two, three, five, ten, two dozen of them that many people consume in one day. Well, and the, the other thing that's really interesting to keep in mind is that flavor chemicals are like words, the way we put words together in sentences. So mm -hmm. they put them together in all sorts of combinations that yield basically thrilling flavor experiences. So even the number of flavorings doesn't really indicate 
this vast portfolio of possibilities that they now have to, to make food seem enticing. But for me, it really comes down to this. We have such a problem with eating too much. More than two thirds of Americans are either overweight or obese. And we're lacing so much of the food we eat with chemicals that make, make literally make us eat food we ordinarily would not want to eat. Um, think about this. We talk about soda. All we ever talk about with soda is the sugar and that the, you know, the, the sugar is responsible for the metabolic complications and the sugar is also what makes it irresistible. Not so fast because take a can of soda water and add the same amount of sugar that you find in a can of soda and you're going to find it's not very palatable. You're going to find if you feed that to a child, they'd be like, daddy, and I've done this. Why are you giving this to me? It's the flavorings that make soft drinks irresistible. If you took all the flavorings out of the soft drink aisle, you would be left with identical bottles and cans of sugary soda water. Yes, indeed. <clears throat> that is a danger. Fortunately, and gratefully, most Americans are waking up to this fact and starting to avoid sugar and really moving towards just simple drinks like water uh, or sparkling water. So uh, you're making some progress in that area. But I think the more awareness people have about the impact of these these flavoring, these chemicals, and the adulteration of the food supply, the more knowledge they have and the wiser choices they can make. But, this, but here's another thing to, to think about. It's a simple example with things like Doritos or soda. A lot of us know, you, you know, these aren't healthy foods. Mm -hmm. But it's when you, if you start to look at the ingredient label, you'll be surprised where flavorings are showing up. You find, you find chicken now. Chicken has become so bland that it's flavored. You find pork that has to be flavored because we, we raise our livestock so quickly and so cheaply that it tastes like cardboard. So this, what you might call this model for junk food, which is to say high calorie bland food, that everything is looking like that. It's not just Doritos and soda, mm -hmm. it's everything. So we yes. might think we're making a healthy choice, but really we're being fooled in the same way. Well, but if you understand the foundation of it, I think you can make wiser choices. So the the, found, the foundation is the industrialization of food. And in your book, I think you uh, describe the chicken of tomorrow contest, which happened in the late 40s in the effort to create a larger chicken, which is now a, a run by today's, today's standards. And um, I actually actually interviewed Marin McKenna, who wrote a more recent book called Big Chicken. So mm -hmm. we, we can comment on that too. But maybe you can describe the big the Chicken of Tomorrow contest. Yeah, the Chicken of Tomorrow contest. Um, it, essentially, it, it was born of the fact that during World War II, red meat was being rationed. A lot of red meat was being sent overseas. So Americans started to eat more chicken, and the chicken industry wanted to keep the good times going. Um, so they had a contest. They thought if we can get chickens to grow faster. Uh, and be cheaper and be plumper, we'll get people to eat more chicken. So they held a contest um, and, and the contest was a raging success. They found a chicken that you know, grew weeks faster than the speedy chickens of the day. And this just kept going and going and going. So let's say in the 1940s, if you went to the supermarket to buy a chicken, it would be something like 16 weeks old, maybe 17 weeks old. Now a same size chicken is six weeks old. It's, it's a giant baby. It's, um, it, they call them broilers. Well, back then you used to have broilers, you had fryers, you had roasters, you had stewing fowl, that's all gone. We only have broilers now, we only have giant babies. And perhaps the most interesting thing is if you look at how chicken recipes have changed. Back in the day, you'd look at a recipe for fried chicken and it, it wouldn't be deep fried, it would just be dredged in a little salt and pepper and flour and shallow fried. And if you follow that recipe now with today's chicken, you think, 
the the people of the 1940s had no taste buds. It is like, it, it's so incredibly bland. But if you actually get an heirloom chicken and cook it that way, you will be blown away by the, the, the just wrapped in this embrace of warm chicken flavor. And that's what we've lost. And, and the most interesting thing to me is how satisfying that chicken is. You eat a little bit and you're utterly satisfied. Whereas with modern fried chicken, where we dump in MSG and all sorts of other chemicals, you, you kind of can't stop eating, but it doesn't actually taste that good. And then by the end of it, you're bloated and you're consumed by regret. Well, I would contend it's a little more uh, concerning than that, at least according to Marin, and I would have to agree with her. It's not just a loss of flavor. When I couldn't agree more that if you're growing them correctly, like they do in France, uh, and most of Europe has actually abandoned the practice that we, for the most part, still continue in the U.S., which is giving uh, the these uh, chickens antibiotics in the feed as growth promoters, which uh, is fortunately on the way out because there's such a consumer demand against it. But the problem with giving the animals antibiotics is, you know, I, who wants antibiotics in their food? That's not the primary issue. The primary issue is you develop antibiotic-resistant bacteria which are responsible for tens of thousands of deaths every year in the United States alone. So, you know, it's a marker for bad practices. Yeah, I agree. And that's also a huge problem. And, and like you say, fortunately, um, it's on its way out, but th that's certainly a, a piece of that puzzle. Yeah, and there's been some really progressive uh, 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 sellers or retailers or pr producers, I think pr Purdue Chicken being one of the best, and then Chick-fil-A is being one of the innovative retailers that, that just refused to buy any uh, chicken that was given antibiotics. So, you know, they created a market for it, essentially, and a demand. They listen, yeah, to, the, they listen to the public. No, they did, and that's important because um, you can't just point the finger at producers and say, you've got to change. Um, mm -hmm. They, there needs to be an incentive. And what that shows is that that consumers really can flex their muscle. And then if we if we get upset and we make our views known and we're willing to pay a little bit more for something that's actually better for stuff that's going, you know, we're putting in our bodies, we, we can change the food system. And, you know, a big part of your book is on flavoring. And I'm wondering in researching your book, if you had an opportunity to review this, what's almost six and a half years old now, interview that Morley Safer did on the 60 Minutes in November of 2011 on uh, Flavorist, the tweaking t the taste and creating cravings. Really was a fascinating uh uh, story. I'm sure if you had an opportunity to review that for your book. I did, yes. No, it, it was very interesting. And I, I even... You know, I spoke to a flavor company where they talked to me about this technology have that they have where they can let children adjust flavorings in real time. So what they'll do is they'll have this device blow a cherry flavor into their face and then they have buttons that they can press to change it. And so in real time, they use child subjects to create these sort of super awesome, irresistible cherry flavors that kids will love. So it's amazing how good they are at it. It's amazing how much they know. But, you know, we, we don't stop to think, what are the adverse consequences of that? So what were the insights you gained from connecting with the industry experts in this area where there really are masters, <laughs> I think, of, of, their, of their craft and able to really manipulate uh, uh, almost any food into whatever we want it to believe, whatever we want that us, they want us to believe it tastes like? I mean, it's truly well, extraordinary uh, chemistry. It's beyond extraordinary chemistry. 
And, and also artistry. I mean, they're, they're both chemists and artists. They have uh, palettes that some, some flavorists are known for being really good with berries. Others are known for, you know, for uh, other expertise for, for making stalks soups that taste a certain way. So one of the things I discovered is that there's flavorings in cigarettes. There, there have been for decades. Uh, I even found a memo from the cigarette, uh, pardon me, the cigarette industry from the 1970s that said that one of the reasons they put flavorings in cigarettes was because it would make teenagers like them more. Um, so, I mean, that's a testament to its effectiveness and to getting consumers to do things they wouldn't ordinarily be inclined to do. The other thing I found is that, um, these are interesting people. They're all very well educated. Um, when you ask that, I remember I was, I was being given a kind of a tour of a lab by a flavorist and she said to me, uh, these are literally the chemicals that make people eat. And I said, you know, do you ever pause and think, does, could this have something to do with the obesity epidemic? And she said, no, portion size is a personal choice. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, it's great that it's so simple for you, but how could it possibly be that simple? Because we know this is creating pleasure, and we know that that these hedonic systems, these pleasure systems in our brain, are vulnerable to abuse. And when they go in the wrong direction, um, the you know the effects can be catastrophic. It, it really is almost somewhat tragic that many of these world class experts have been corralled up by essentially the bad guys. You know the the corp massive uh, uh, industrial corporations. Uh, uh, industrialized corporations that are essentially using this to sell uh, junk food. So uh, it would be interesting if uh, some of them could be converted to the good side and uh, start flavoring healthy food with the well, right. And that's happening. And, and that's something that's very exciting to me. Um, one of the things I will say about the, the world of junk food is that they do realize the importance of flavor. Whereas when you look at the world of uh, fruits and vegetables, I've met a lot of important people in that industry and they, they don't really think about it much. They say, I'm not paid for flavor. I don't care about flavor. I've been to Prada's conventions where you meet people who sell broccoli and cauliflower for a living and they don't eat it themselves. Now, that sounds very depressing, but there's another side to this. Um, I spent a lot of time interviewing a gentleman at the University of Florida named Harry Klee, who's been working on tomatoes since the early 1990s, trying to crack the mystery of what happened to tomatoes. Mm -hmm. People think that we, it's because we picked them green, things like that. It, it, the truth is we've genetically damaged tomatoes. They have literally forgotten how to be flavorful because for so many years, we've been breeding tomatoes to produce a big crop, to have a long shelf life to be disease resistant. Well, that's all really worked. It's amazing how much more productive tomato plants are than they were, let's say hundred years ago. They're more than 10 times as productive, but we've paid for it in flavor. And we all know this because in the summer you get an heirloom tomato out of your backyard or your grandmother's backyard and you're absolutely blown away. And what's happened is every time we've made one of these selections of a tomato variety for yield, for disease resistance, for shelf life, if you don't select flavor, you lose flavor. Tomatoes have lost flavor for the same reason that we don't have tails anymore. It's reverse evolutionary pressure. So knowing that, knowing what we've done, means we can start to take steps to undo the damage. And this is where it gets even more interesting because when Harry Klee started to look, what he wanted to figure out is how does a tomato make its flavor? Well, what he found is that there's about 26 compounds in tomatoes, flavor compounds that really drive the experience of liking, that make us go, yes, this is an amazing tomato. So he thought, if I can figure out how the tomato makes each one of those, I can target it and I can breed for it. 
by you know ordinary classic breeding, I can target those flavor pathways. And what he found is that for each of those 26 flavors, it's synthesized from an essential nutrient. This basically means that the flavor of a tomato is like a big chemical sign telling your brain there's good stuff in here. This is, this is why we have noses. This is why we have this chemical sensing apparatus because it leads us to the nutrients that we need. So when you start to fix the flavor problem in a tomato, you improve the nutrition and you improve the, let's say the chemical representation of that tomato. So you bite into it, you go, yes, that's a great tomato. It works so beautifully in whole foods. But when you create a tomato flavoring in a factory and you put it on a potato chip or you put it in a sugary tomato sauce, you're creating this experience of tomato, but you're not delivering the nutrition. And, and that I think is a really elegant illustration of just how things have gone off the rails. So, so I'm interested in your observations on the health food industry and people selling vegetables like broccoli, which you referenced. Um, so what would your solution be to identify the specific flavorful chemicals in broccoli and and breed for those chemicals? Or would it be more to, to quickly ramp up the process and identify them, synthesize them and spray them on the food? No, I think it's better to breed for it. I think I think when you... You know, we're very good at reductionism in our culture in, in, in terms of figuring out things on a molecular level. It's very powerful technology. It's not inherently evil, but sometimes we use it the wrong way. And I think when you create sprays and so forth, it, 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 nature doesn't work that way. It's just too complex. If you think the, the flavor in vegetables, it, it, here's an interesting difference between fruits and vegetables. Fruits always taste good. They're designed to be enticing. Not all fruits, but there's, this, there's this motive. The plant wants its seed dispersed so i'll wrap it in delicious flesh nutritious and the animal will do the work for me vegetables are different uh, if you ate an onion from the inside if you were kind of microscopic it wouldn't taste like an onion the flavor of an onion is produced instantly when you break the cell wall it's it's a um it's a fight response the onion wants you to go away mm -hmm. so there's really no way we can capture this complexity of nature in a simple spray so i think the better thing to do we we all know Eat real food. This is a solution that works. It has always worked. And it doesn't even have to be as complex as the work that Harry Klee is doing. You don't necessarily have to identify the, the flavor compounds in broccoli. You can just breed broccoli and give it out to people and say, how does this taste? Oh, and if, you know, they're doing some amazing work with a group I talked to in Oregon where they're breeding, for example, habanero peppers, where they've gotten rid, they, they, they bred out some of that intense spice that some people can't take, the, the crazy heat but kept those wonderful flavors. So you don't necessarily need to be a molecular breeder. It's just, you just need to care about flavor. Well, I think it's an intriguing option. Uh, uh, if, you, if you even went to the more extensive approach like Harry was doing in his University of Florida lab and actually identified the chemicals and then breed for that, uh, that's again, going back to what we discussed about earlier, more likely gonna be a marker for high nutrient density food because the only way the plant's gonna make that flavorful chemical, which we were normally attracted to is because it's got some good nutrients in there for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You need the precursor. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's a good strategy. Uh, have you ever discussed that with any producers? I've discussed it with several producers and, and this is where it gets a little bit frustrating. Um, the, the produce industry flavor hasn't mattered for so long that when you talk about it, they often look at you like, like you've got a third eye or something. Um, I've talked to tomato producers who have said things, I don't get paid for flavor, I don't care about flavor, why would I produce flavor? It, it can be incredibly depressing. However, 
I think like so many industries, there's a lot of disruption taking place. And I think somebody mm-hmm. is going to grab hold of this. Uh, all I will do is point to the world of craft beer and wine, which mm-hmm. is to say we've seen enormous market growth and it's been driven by flavor. It's amazing how much money people will pay for craft beer. And the difference is not that it tastes blander, it has more flavor. So I think there's an enormous business opportunity. And I think this is where the money will be. And I think we will see people go there, but it may not be the kind of the entrenched players. It, it, I'm, I'm beginning to think it's going to be a startup or, or somebody, somebody who's trying to change it. Well, my guess is too, you're talking to conventional producers who could care less about health. You know, they're really interested in the the cheapest, most cost-effective product that they can produce. And there's not to disparage them for that. That's, you know, they have to earn an income. But there are sub-markets, the people who are growing heirloom vegetables or organic or biodynamics who would be fascinated with this approach. No, and they are. And I've sent out seeds and I've gotten at my local farmer's market, I've given seeds to the farmer. And I said, you got to try these tomatoes. He loves the tomatoes because they grow. You know, here's the thing. Harry Klee has created a modern tomato that has the flavor of an heirloom, but it still has the yield. It has the disease resistance. It's not GMO. It's just a classically bred tomato. And mm-hmm. it really, it's the best of both worlds. Uh, chefs love these tomatoes because even when you have, like we had a summer where it was cool and rainy and the tomatoes were still great. So I, yeah, the people who care about flavor, they, they have seen the light and they love this stuff. Is, is Harry doing any other work outside of tomatoes? Because it sounds like he has a fascinating opportunity to expand into the, the whole industry. Yeah, they, so he's really focused on tomatoes, but his methods have sort of seeped into the rest of the uh, faculty there. They're doing work with uh, strawberries. They're doing work with corn. They're doing work with potatoes. So, uh, you know, the more of that research I see, the more excited I get. I, I really think there's reason to be hopeful and excited. Now, I'm just curious as to what led you to conclude this association between flavors and nutrient density, because it isn't necessarily obvious. Uh, I mean, is there a a mentor or a book you read or what what inspired you to go down this path? The the first spark um, of intuition was actually grass-fed beef. Oh, that's right. Uh, You mentioned that. So it was grass-fed beef. Well, because I fully expected, you know, we tend to think that there's such an inverse relationship between health and deliciousness that I set out to do that steak thinking that, you know, it might be that the best steak I find is it's awful for the cow. It's horrible for the planet. And and it's like a heart attack on a plate. And what I found oddly was that the, the, the most delicious steak to me was the best for the planet, nicest for the cow and the best for me. And I thought, this is not what I expected. This is not what we're taught to expect. Is there something going on here? Well, great. So in pursuing your research for the book, are there any other uh, lessons that you learned that you could share with us? Uh, well, I think to one, one thing we can think about is trusting our intuitions. How we intuitively want to eat, it's how we were designed. It's essentially how we're wired. It's really hard to ignore. And it actually does work if you eat real food. My advice to people is eat the most delicious food you can, but buy real food. So don't be frightened of of calories. Don't be frightened of all food. You know, I talked to one blogger who said, you know, if my kid knew what to eat, all they would do is eat carrots and red peppers. And I said, no, your kid would die. I mean, (laughs) our problem now is that we have these macronutrients in the wrong ratios, but you do, we do need to eat a balanced diet. I think we're, the other thing I would like to tell people is be aware of your own eating experience. I think this is something I'm getting into in my next book, but I think there's two different kinds of delicious. There's a delicious when you you can't stop eating. This is what happens to me with like flavored potato chips or Doritos. You have one 
and you just can't really resist putting your hand back in the bag. You never talk to someone, you never say, boy, in the summer of 1997, I had a, salt, uh, a sour cream and onion chip that I will never forget. These are never rich, pleasurable experiences. It's, it's more like something is turned on and we can't stop. These are experiences to be avoided. This is, this is the problem we get into is when we consume food, we don't actually like that much. We just want it. Then there's other foods. I think dark chocolate's a great example. I think a great tomato is a really good example where the point isn't to stuff as much into your mouth as fast as you can. The point is to sit in kind of deep contemplation of this incredible flavor experience. And that to me is a, is a better kind of food experience to have. I don't think it's one that you need to be afraid of and I think it's one that will give back. And the other thing I would say is be aware of how you feel after a meal and try mm -hmm. to integrate that into your, your perception of food. You know, I've eaten some, some pretty low end fried chicken that kind of had that manic, I can't stop eating in the moment thing. And then an hour later you, you feel dreadful. If you can remember that feeling, it makes you less inclined to go after that again in the future. Absolutely. So pretty sage wisdom from your investigations and thank you for sharing them. So, well, thank you. And I, I, I appreciate having the opportunity to talk. So the book is the Dorito effect and what's your, that's the, out now, what's your next book and when is that expected to come out? So the next book will be out in a couple of years. Um, it's called The End of Craving. And mm. that is, is taking a deeper look at to exactly how some of these things we've done in the modern food environment are, are messing up this internal program, our eating program, and it's tilting so many of us in the wrong direction. Um, I got to some of it in Dorito, and I think there's even more. Okay, great. We'll look forward to that. Sounds fascinating. Thank you. And uh, thank you for researching us and uh, allowing us to benefit from your work. Appreciate oh, my it. pleasure. Thank you very much.